This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The beautiful dream of a new Catholic culture. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verse 17. The nature of culture is a difficult one for practical Americans to understand. We know that it exists. We see the culture expressed in the goods that we use and in the ways that we use our leisure time. Yet it is difficult for us to define the term. Yet many Americans carry a sense that our culture is in trouble. We see deterioration, but we lack any constructive sense of how it can be rebuilt, restored, and renewed. Today, the Return to Order moment will focus on renewing the culture. We will begin with an explanation of the ideal culture from the founder of the worldwide TFP movement, Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira. This article is titled, Considerations of Catholic Culture. It was published in the American TFP's magazine, Crusade, in its July-August 2001 issue. What is culture? The question has received a variety of responses, some inspired in the study of literature, others in philosophic or social systems of every kind. So complicated are the contradictions surrounding this term and another related to it, civilization, that international congresses of professors and other learned men have met especially to define them. As usually happens, much discussion shed little light on the subject. It is impossible in the space we have here to mention all the themes and arguments of the various currents, to affirm and justify our own thesis, and afterwards to treat of Catholic culture. We can, however, seriously consider the subject, taking the term culture in the thousand modes in which it has been clothed by the language of so many peoples, social classes, and schools of thought. We begin by showing that in all of them, culture contains an invariable basic element, the refinement of the human spirit. At the heart of the notion of refinement is the idea that every man has in his spirit qualities susceptible of development and defects that can be restrained. Refinement, then, has two aspects. One positive, signifying the growth of what is good, and the other negative, the removal of what is bad. Many current ways of thinking and feeling about culture are explained in light of this principle. Thus, we do not hesitate to recognize as cultural a university, a school of music or acting, or even a chess club. These entities or social groups directly seek the refinement of the spirit, or at least pursue ends that in themselves refine the spirit. We also recognize that a university or any other cultural institution may work against culture, however, as happens when, because of errors of any kind, its action deforms the spirit. 
One could affirm this, for example, about certain schools that impress upon their students disdain for everything philosophical or artistic. A person whose state of spirit moves him to adore technology as the value supreme and the only foundation of the soul, to deny every certainty not derived from laboratory experiment, and to scornfully reject everything beautiful is, without a doubt, suffering from a deformation of spirit. Deformed also would be the spirit that, moved by an inordinate philosophical appetite, were to deny any worth to art, poetry, or even more modest activities that also require intelligence and culture, such as technology. We would say that universities which form their students according to some of these false orientations exercise an anti-cultural action or propagate a false culture. In this current sense, fencing is recognized as an exercise of a certain cultural value, for it supposes physical dexterity, vivacity of soul, and elegance. But it would be contrary to common sense to attribute any cultural value to boxing, which, aiming heavy and brutal blows at the very face of a man, is inherently degrading to the spirit. At first sight, and in the general understanding, the distinction between instruction and culture is less clear. But, things being well analyzed, one sees that such a distinction exists and rests upon a solid foundation. A person who reads a great deal is generally considered very cultured, at least as compared with another who reads little. And between two who read a lot, the one who reads more will be seen as the more cultured. As instruction in itself refines the spirit, it is natural that, all else being equal, one who is better read is considered more cultured. The danger of error in this proposition arises from the fact that many people inadvertently simplify notions and end up considering culture a mere consequence of the number of books read. It is a flagrant error. For reading is advantageous not so much in the quantity as in the quality of the books read, and principally in function of the quality of the one who reads and the reason for which he reads. That is, reading in thesis instructs, in the sense of merely providing information. But a person well read and instructed, or as it may be, a person informed of many facts or notions of scientific, historical, or artistic interest may be less cultured than another with a lesser store of knowledge. Instruction only refines the spirit when followed by a profound assimilation resulting from sound reflection. And for this reason, he who has read little but assimilated much is more cultured than he who has read much but assimilated little. For example, a museum guide is usually quite informed about the exhibits that he shows visitors, but not infrequently he is little cultured. He limits himself to memorization and looks not to assimilation. Everything a man learns with the senses or intelligence exercises an effect over the powers of his soul. A person may free himself more, less, or even entirely from this effect according to the case, but in itself, each measure of knowledge acquired tends to exercise an effect over him. As we already said, 
Cultural action consists in accentuating all the effects that refine and in curbing those that do not. Well understood, reflection is the first of the positive means of action. Much, much more than a bookworm, a walking encyclopedia of facts, dates, names, and texts, the man of culture ought to be a thinker. And for the man who thinks, the principal book is the reality before his eyes. The author most consulted is himself, while other authors and books, albeit precious elements, are clearly subsidiary. Nevertheless, mere reflection is not enough. Man is not a pure spirit. Through an affinity that is not just conventional, there exists a link between the superior realities he considers with his intelligence and the colors, sounds, forms, and aromas he perceives through his senses. The cultural effort is only complete when man absorbs, through these sensible channels, the entire essence of the values his intelligence considers. Song, poetry, and art have exactly this as their end. And it is through an accurate and superior interrelationship with what is beautiful, rightly understood it is clear, that the soul entirely absorbs truth and good. For a culture to be founded upon true principles, it is necessary that it contain exact notions concerning the perfection of man, be it in the powers of the soul or in the relations of the soul with the body, and concerning the means by which it ought to attain this perfection, the obstacles it may encounter, and so on. It is easy to see that culture, thus understood, must be entirely nourished by the doctrinal sap of the true religion. For it belongs to the true religion to teach us in what man's perfection consists, the ways to attain it, and the obstacles opposed to it. And our Lord Jesus Christ, the ineffable personification of all perfection, is thus the embodiment, the sublime model, the focus, the vigor, the life, the glory, the standard, and the delight of true culture. This is to say that true culture can only be based on the true religion, and that only from the spiritual atmosphere created by the interrelationship of profoundly Catholic souls can the perfect culture be born, as the dew is formed in the sound and vivacious atmosphere of the early morning. This is also demonstrated in the light of other considerations. We said above that man is susceptible to the influence of all he sees with the eyes of the body or the soul. All the natural marvels with which God filled the universe are made so that the human soul, considering them, may refine itself. But the realities that transcend the senses are intrinsically more admirable than the sensible ones. And if the contemplation of a flower, a star, or a droplet of water can refine man, how much more the contemplation of that which the Church teaches us concerning God, His angels, His saints, paradise, grace, eternity, providence, hell, evil, the devil, and so many other truths. On earth, the image of heaven is the Holy Church, God's masterpiece. The consideration of the Church, 
her dogmas, her sacraments, her institutions, is for this very reason a supreme element of human refinement. A man born in the tunnels of some mine who never sees the light of day would lose a precious, perhaps even capital, element of cultural enrichment. He who does not know the church, of which the sun is not but a pallid figure in the most literal sense of the word, loses much culturally. But there is more. The church is the mystical body of Christ. In her circulates grace, coming to us through the infinitely precious redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ. By grace, men are elevated to participation in the very life of the Most Holy Trinity. It suffices to say this in order to affirm the incomparable element of culture the Church gives us by opening the doors of the supernatural order. Therefore, the highest ideal of culture is contained in God's holy Church. Can men develop a true culture outside the Church? No one would deny that the Egyptians, the Greeks, or the Chinese possessed authentic and admirable elements of culture. However, it is undeniable that the Christianization of the classical world gave it much higher cultural values. St. Thomas teaches that human intelligence is able, of itself, to know the principles of moral law, but that in consequence of original sin, men easily deviate from the knowledge of this law. Wherefore, it became necessary for God to reveal the Ten Commandments. What is more, without the help of grace, no one can enduringly practice the law in its entirety. And though grace is given to all men, we know that the Catholic peoples, with the superabundant graces they receive from the Church, are those who do manage to practice all the commandments. On the other hand, a human society is only in its normal state when the greater part of its members observe the natural law. And from this it follows that if non-Catholic peoples are able to have admirable cultural attainments, their culture is always gravely lacking in some capital points, depriving it of integrity and full harmony, so necessary to all that is excellent or even simply normal. Again, in the church alone is found true and perfect culture. This concludes Considerations on Catholic Culture by Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira. Having defined culture and seeing that its best source is the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church, we now discuss the first step in restoring that sense of culture. When we say restore, we admit that we cannot turn the clock back to the age of Christendom as it existed before Martin Luther's revolution. Technology has changed our lives too much for that. We can, however, bring the Church back to the central position that it should have in our culture. Mr. John Horvath II discusses that first step in his article, Cultural Renewal Requires Dreamers and Visionaries. This article was found on www.returntoorder.org. It was first published in Crisis Magazine on May 10, 2017. One can tell the state of the society by its dreamers. When a society is comfortably decadent, few dare to imagine a world beyond the surrounding material comforts. 
In such a society, most people are content with the mediocrity of a superficial world in which those who dream are stifled and silenced. However, when a society is polarized and politicized as it is today, a great discontent takes hold. People desperately want to leave their stressful situation. That is when people start to dream about what might be possible, and that can be a positive development, but not always. As a hopeful sign in these unsettled times, some books have appeared recently that explore imagined worlds of what might be possible. Ironically, most of the authors would not like to be called dreamers. Books are strange creatures. Authors write them with one purpose in mind. Some readers then read them and find benefits that are different from the author's original intent. Anthony Esselin's recent book, Out of the Ashes, Rebuilding American Culture, for example, has something of this. The hands-on style of the book's narrative naturally leads one to think of it as a practical blueprint for some form of return to order. It is full of how-to advice on rebuilding society. The author would cringe if called a dreamer. Another book, Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society by R. R. Reno, likewise dares to imagine an avowedly Christian society. The author's approach is to address this resurrection as something that has been done before and so might be done again. These books and others like them have a dream component that isn't always obvious. The authors imagine an order of things that was once common when society was healthy. They do not necessarily see their findings as dreams, but rather as a simple return to normality. However, after two generations in a cultural wasteland, many have no idea what a healthy society is like. The 60s so devastated the land, and so many under the age of 60 have now lived for so long amid abnormality that it is unclear to them what normality is, hence the need to dream. In this context, to dream means the process by which people idealize their goals in society. It is a recognized sociological concept that refers to the indispensable capacity of families, social units, or peoples to envision a future for themselves that considers both the practical means at hand and a higher ideal. Every society has its dreams. Quote, We have no knowledge of any human community where men do fail to dream, writes Irving Crystal which is to say, we know of no human community whose members do not have a vision of perfection, a vision in which the frustrations inherent in our human condition are annulled and transcended, unquote. Quote, Without the metaphysical dream, it is impossible to think of men living together harmoniously over an extent of time, writes Richard Weaver. The dream carries with it an evaluation which is the bond of spiritual community, unquote. New dreams appear when old dreams decay, when the unifying principles of old dreams no longer serve to inspire a society, there are two options. The first is that society shatters chaotically into a thousand different directions. People stake out their individual dreams, which are only whims, fancies, or personal goals. The second option is the appearance of new dreams. 
These dreams surface when people begin to question a society in crisis and ask, what if? People start to think of ways in which things might be made better or more perfect. When a whole society does this, it sets in motion true dreams that result in wholesome ideas, actions, and artistic expressions enabling a society's progress. The problem today is that an exhausted American dream that has long relied on notions of material abundance and unlimited progress is losing its ability to unite and motivate the nation. New dreams connected to the country's traditions must appear. Once more, people need to start asking, what if? These new dreams must be grounded in reality, common sense, and high principles. They must also be possible. The modern tendency is to divide the world between the idealist and the common sense realist, forcing people into choosing a single wing when both are needed for flight. If society pursues dreams correctly, this wrong-headed divorce between idealism and reality need never happen. And that is why recent books asking what if are so important. Most of them make an important link to past dreams. They use something they know to be historically possible and allow readers to build upon this to imagine a world beyond the present. They return to a framework of principles from which, like a river at its source, a new dream might surface. What must be prevented at all costs is that these dreams become fantasies. The tiring of old dreams can lead some people to mistakenly grab onto illusions that suddenly appear before them like desert mirages. Dreams cannot be based on flawed assumptions. There are those like diehard liberals, Marxists, and transhumanists who fantasize about changing human nature. Nationalists fantasize about skewed visions of the nation. Others, like the Benedict Option, conjure up proposals that ignore the facts when it fails to consider the context of a cultural war that makes isolation impossible. In this case, when the task of reforming society is deemed hopeless, the option splintering into intentional communities makes difficult the unifying dream we now need. The dreams needed today must be based on a human nature that does not change. They must recognize that fallen nature imposes upon society limitations and contingencies. They must acknowledge that utopias cannot be established in this veil of tears, and that whenever man revolts against human nature and its contingencies, sooner or later, disaster will be his lot. Finding a way out of this disaster is not difficult, since the problems that plague mankind today are not new, nor are the proposed false solutions original. Likewise, the correct way out of the wilderness has already been mapped. Historically, when ailing civilizations come back to health, they always return to an order that organically develops. Such an order is always centered around natural institutions of family, community, and religious belief. It is governed by a universal sense of right and wrong written on the hearts of all men. It is directed toward a final end found in a benevolent God that desires man's good. 
When people dare to dream of this order, it can give rise to a revitalized culture with a rich and marvelous variety and impressive unity. However, these changes often only happen in times of crisis. Unfortunately, decadent societies stubbornly cling to the idea that they can never fall, despite mounting evidence to the contrary. Likewise, they deny the power of a dream to transform society. These preconceptions are overcome when perceptive souls begin to question the course of the nation and propose new directions. They recall and build upon tradition to project a new future. The nation is now in dire straits, and a great debate is needed to discuss the discontent that rages throughout the country. Books that highlight these matters help shatter the complacency of those who refuse to confront reality. They also break the consensus that new dreams are useless. However, these books are but stepping stones that help people to imagine the society that is needed. As long as they respect human nature and its limitations, people should dream boldly, far beyond a mere rebuilding or restoration. They should look among Esalen's ashes of the present crisis for the embers of past traditions from which a new society can be enkindled. With the help of God's grace, much more should be imagined, so that much more can be obtained. This concludes Cultural Renewal Requires Dreamers and Visionaries by John Horvath II and The Beautiful Dream of a New Catholic Culture podcast. Mr. Horvat does not mention another book that is designed to prompt people to dream of and to build a new Christian society. That is his own book, Return to Order, From a Frenzied Economy to an Organic Christian Society. It is available through the www.returntoorder.com website as a free download or through our bookstore as a hard copy or recorded on CD. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.